Hello divine souls, Jamila Bernie here with Becoming the Big Me. I'm so excited for this special segment of the Becoming the Big Me podcast. This section of the podcast is dedicated towards sharing the stories of conquest for some incredible individuals. They are also featured in my latest book, Becoming the Big Me, The Great Conquest. In this section of the podcast, we will dive deep into each of their stories and their journeys and their hardships from addiction, PTSD, loss of loved ones and children. This segment of the podcast is dedicated towards sharing their stories and and sharing their journeys, not only of the hardships, but sharing how they overcame. To learn more about the authors behind the stories that you are going to hear, go to thegreatconquest.com. And if you would like to purchase a copy of The Great Conquest book, you can go to bit.ly slash greatconquest. And without further ado, let's dive into the amazing journeys. Hello, hello, you guys. Welcome back to the Becoming the Big Me podcast. I'm your host, Jamila Bernie, and I am so excited, you guys. Today, I have an amazing guest to introduce to you guys, Russell Creed. Russell is the founder of Invictus Life, where he helps men to find their way back to their inspired masculine soul, the soul that was sacrificed in the pursuit of being who they thought that they were supposed to be. Russell helps his students to see that they are unconquerable and that they have the power to create whatever reality it is that they desire. Russell has an incredibly powerful story of conquest that will inspire so many people, and I'm so excited to be able to share it with you guys today. When Russell was in the prime of his career, he was diagnosed with a rare liver disease. He spent six years on the transplant list while maintaining a chief actuary role and providing for a family of seven. Overcoming the disease through a liver transplant was really only the first battle for Russell. For what he uncovered during his physical recovery was a soul and identity that had been buried in his efforts to please others and do what he thought was right. The real conquest for Russell was the conquest over the battle that emerged as he revived his soul. Hey, Russell, thank you so much for coming on to share your story with us today. I know that you have such a very powerful story of overcoming, but before we dive into all of the details, can you give us a little bit of history, the the Russell Creed backstory? Yes, and first of all, thank you for having me here with you today and uh, sharing my story with your guests. It's quite an honor, and I'm I'm very thankful for that opportunity. Just to give a little bit of a backstory, I was um, I was one of those guys that was a a uh, a super achiever, uh, the straight A student, the the guy who went to college you know, and. I studied mathematics, not the easiest subject to study. And so I was on a path towards excelling and most everything that I did. Um, when I got married and started out in the job force, I went for the, the best job I could come up with. And that was 
to become an actuary. At the time, actuary was considered the number one job in the US. And it wasn't an easy path, it was a hard path. You had to study all these exams, do everything. Um, uh, it was a lot of independent study. Uh, literally every, every six months, I was spending up to 2,000 hours of my personal time studying for exams while working full time. And, and I excelled in that and reached the, uh, what would be considered the pinnacle of the career of being a chief actuary. But it's, it's during that period that, as you mentioned earlier, I was diagnosed with a very rare disease called primary sclerosis and cholangitis. And it was, uh, that began a struggle for me um, with my health and trying to maintain all the things that I thought I was supposed to do that um, and literally uh, led, basically marched to, the, to, to, to my deathbed. And that's what I thought I was on, was just a, a death march and trying to do all the things that I was supposed to and finish strong. I was planning on finishing strong. Um, thankfully, I was saved through, through some medical you know, the, the medical techniques that we have today, and it was quite a remarkable story and all of that. Um, but it was really afterwards that I went through some, what they call the dark night of the soul, when I really started questioning who I was, what I was doing with life, um, why was I even here? And as, as I struggled with those questions um, and learned a lot more about who I really was, what my real passions were, uh, that I reemerged and, and started to create a life that I truly, truly loved. It wasn't until then that I really fell in love with, with my wife and my family and all the else that was going on. Before, I was really just going through the motions and doing all the things that I was supposed to be doing. So do I'd you, love to, to delve into all of that with you. Yeah, do you feel that that the, the being diagnosed um, was... The, the trigger for you to realize that you weren't fully living the life that you knew you could? Actually, it was not the diagnosis that was mm. the trigger for me. Okay. Interestingly enough, I was in a place where I thought, you know, I was doing all the right things. And it was more of why me at that point? Mm. Why me? I'm the, I'm the guy who's, who's following all the rules. Um, I was healthy thought I was healthy. You know, I had a great career, great family, uh, active in um, a religious community, active in the scouting community. That's where my boys were at. I wanted to make sure they had the best experience they could have. And so everywhere I went, I was trying to elevate the experience and elevate uh, what was taking place for others. And so here I am doing, you know, doing what I thought was all the right things. And I got diagnosed with this very rare disease. And at the time, um, a lot of it was, why me? Why me? I mean, I've done it all right. Oh, what kind of punishment am I getting for doing all the right things? Um, funny thing is, it's, it's a liver disease. I never drank. Uh, I was pretty much a teetotaler. I would have, uh, I would share a bottle of wine or champagne with my wife once a year at New Year's. Um, and, and part of me was a bit resentful. 
I know my brother um, who drank all the time. My father was an alcoholic. So it was something I avoided and, and it was in my life and everyone else was fine. But the guy who avoided alcohol ended up with a liver disease. So yeah, it was all why me, why me? And feeling that victim mentality. The trigger for me really happened after my survival. And I started to re-engage in um, life as it was before. And it was at that point after going through all the trauma, um, all the pain and asking myself, why? Why did I go through all that? Why am I still here? And everyone kept telling me I was here for a purpose. I was here for a reason. And I was really struggling with trying to figure out that, what that purpose was. And that was uh, maddening that I, you know, everyone else saw this thing that I couldn't see. And all I could see is that I'm going back to an office, which felt mundane, like it wasn't exciting. Um, I even remember when I was in college and I learned about this, this kind of job, the actuary. I thought, that's so boring. I'm never going to do that. And yet here I was <laughs> 20 years later, you know, that, that was my life. Driving to work in rush hour traffic an hour each way was mind-numbing for me. Um, and being taken away from my family that whole time. Um, and I felt like I was always just, I was just the paycheck. I was the guy that would go out, make the money, come home. And, you know, there wasn't a whole lot that happened after that. So I was the paycheck. So that's where I was starting to question, really, what is life about? Why am I here? Would it have been better off if I hadn't made it? Because then there wouldn't be all this struggle and all this trouble. Man, Russell, that hit me really hard. I felt that one because I think that that is a battle that many people face in their lives. Maybe it doesn't you know, manifest itself in the exact way as your story, but we can often find ourselves in very, very similar situations. So that, that, that has me curious. How, how, how did you keep going? How did you get yourself to get up each day when, when you didn't really feel like there was much that you were living for? That's a great question. And sometimes I look back and wonder that as well. Mm. Uh, during the time, um, the thing that kept me going was really a sense of duty, responsibility to provide for my family. I was the sole breadwinner in our household. Mm. And you, you know, it's not a small household. It was my wife and five kids. Uh, they were still young kids. And so my main motivation was still to make sure that they had as much as I could provide for them at the time. And getting up every day was a challenge. It was very, very much a challenge, not just because of the lack of motivation, but because of let me share with you a little bit about what it's like to have primary sclerosis and cholangitis. That's okay with you. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it would help if I tell you a little bit about it first. Primary sclerosis and cholangitis is a disease really of the bile. And the bile is the stuff that um, helps break down uh, all your food and, and all the things. It's very corrosive 
imperial. And so inside your liver is this uh, biliary system, which looks like a bunch of rivers that flow together and dump into your stomach and gallbladder and so forth to help digest all, all those things. Like I said, it's very corrosive. And so when your biliary tract starts to deteriorate, that bile starts to back up. It's like having big dams in the river, right? Or when there's a dam in the river, it all starts to flood. Right now, I live near the Mississippi River and we're having floods at this very moment. So that's what it's like when this bile backs up in your liver and starts to destroy it and it becomes um, hardened. And its normal function is to filter and do all the things that your body needs uh, to maintain its, its ability. There's a reason it's called the liver. It's the thing that keeps you living. And it, <clears throat> it starts to, to fail because it's all clogged up. Um, you pretty much end up with cirrhosis, very much like the liver of an alcoholic. Uh, so like an 80-year-old alcoholic, which again, it was the irony that here's the guy who never drank, even though his, that was a core component of the other men in his family. And he, he ended up with cirrhosis of the mm -hmm. liver. Um, and so your liver maintains a lot of things. Uh, it, it helps maintain your energy. It helps maintain your temperature, your body temperature. Um, it's, again, it's helping to digest your food. And so while I had PSC, and that's the short for primary sclerosis colon guys, I'll call it PSC from now on. PSC, <laughs> it's a it's mouthful. mouthful. <laughs> right? So um, it's very well known in the PSC community that the main symptoms that you feel are fatigue. Um, you turn jaundice. You start to turn yellow and you have itchiness, itchiness all over your skin. They don't really quite understand what causes it. They think it has to do with the bile salts building up in your system. But if you've ever had poison ivy, you've gotten in poison ivy, that's what it feels like um, all over your body all the time. Wow. It's maddening. And even, even inside your ears. I can, mm. I can still remember having itchiness inside my ears and I, uh, you couldn't get rid of it because you can't get anything in there. It's, it's mind numbing. Um, and the, so the itchiness was so crazy. I, I remember coming home from work for days where I'd pull my socks down afterwards and I would spend 15, 20 minutes just scratching my legs. Sometimes scratching them raw because it itched so bad. Um, so that was one part of, of this the symptoms that was just awful. The second part was this fatigue and the fatigue uh, is hard to describe. It is so debilitating at times. Um, you feel like walking around like a zombie. And I remember like my biggest challenge was actually getting out of bed. On those days, it was it was hard to get out of bed because I was never, I never felt rested. I would sleep 10, 12 hours a night and I would wake up exhausted. Mm. And I would still get up, um, put on my clothes, hop in the car, try to stay awake on the drive-in. Um, there were times when I was I was dozing off. 
uh, not the best thing to be doing in rush hour traffic. Uh, nothing ever happened. Um, and then I would go to the office and, and work all day. And again, the motivation, the thing that got me up every day is knowing that it all was dependent upon, on me. That's what I told myself. It was all dependent on me. And that I had to do these things. I had no choice. Um, and so I was being the good soldier uh, and marching on. And again, with this mentality that I just have to make it to the end. I really didn't think I was going to make it beyond that. So keep providing as much as I can while I have time to do that. Wow. That's so powerful. And coming from a parent to another parent, I can understand the, the pull to provide and, and how we will do anything, you know, to provide for our kids. Now I'm curious because so many people end up stuck in that trap, right, Russell? We get stuck with our, with our job and the providing trap that we never feel that we can fully live. Mm -hmm. Did you, did you, was there a moment when you realized that you were stuck? I want to, I want to start hearing about that awakening. Yes. Um, that was, as I mentioned before, was after, after yeah. recovery, um, after, so during the recovery, I was home again for about six, six to eight months. And, and were you work, you were working still through this process through the recovery process no no okay. i actually i worked i worked up right until so the only cure that they have for for psc at this time is a transplant okay they don't know how to cure the disease so what they do is they take the organ out of the body and replace it with a new um and so that's i was was essentially waiting for the time um, if I was able to make it for that to happen. And okay. so I spent six years on the transplant list. Um, as soon as they diagnosed me with this disease, I was put on the transplant list. Uh, that alone was a six month process of going through all kinds of tests and trying to understand what um, my body composition was, what my bone structure was, what the body cavity what sort of blood work, all these mm -hmm. things that they had to test and, and check. And they, and they regularly checked on me. Like every six months, I was doing um, CT scans and um, um, so ultrasounds. Six, so and, six years you were going through this extreme fatigue and, and the symptoms for six years you were living through that as you yes. were waiting. Wow. Yeah. Yes. And it, it, it waned and waxed. Uh, sometimes um, it, you would look at me and you wouldn't know I was sick at all. And there were days when I had plenty of energy and was able to do things. I remember even a year before my transplant, the family and I took a trip to Tennessee to the Smoky Mountains. And I hiked to the top of chimney tops with my kids. Um, it wasn't the first time I'd done that. When I did that about 15 years earlier, I had carried my one-year-old son, firstborn, to the top on chimney pots on my back. Uh, this time we had uh, a five-year-old and um, 
I, it was all I could do to encourage him to keep keep walking and to make it to the top because I was struggling to make it to the top myself. Um, so yeah, for six years I was on this cycle of deteriorating health, going through all these uh, tests, and um, with the uncertainty of whether or not that was a solution. A lot of people in that position don't actually make it because there's an organ shortage in our country. And the, the game of the transplant is that whoever's in the worst condition at the time that matches the organ is the one that gets the organ. Mm. Um, so you have to wait until you're almost on your deathbed before you're even eligible. Wow. And so you're part, just so, sitting, watching yourself slowly deteriorate? Yes, yes. That's, that's it. And for liver, one of the things that they, they keep an eye on is a measurement called MELD, which is the measure of end-stage liver disease. And it's a number that's composed of certain aspects from your blood, blood work. Um, and they indicate the liver function and kidney function. And as, as your MELD goes up, you become a higher priority on the list. In my area, and it varies across the country, in my area in St. Louis, the average MELD score where someone received their transplant was somewhere around 22 to 25. And for many years, I was hanging out around 15 to 18. So I wasn't near the top priority and I was still fairly active. And to put it in context, someone who's in normal health, they have a MELD score of like one. Okay. And so here I am 15, which is, you know, basically um, way worse than your average person, <laughs> yeah. right? And near the end, um, my, my MELD score started to escalate rapidly. And so I worked up until two weeks before my transplant. And it was at that point that I just, I couldn't even get up enough energy uh, to walk from my bed to my couch. Mm. That was, that was a struggle for me. And it's not, that wasn't very far. And so I had to go on disability. And within two weeks of going on disability, I was in the hospital uh, with a MELD score of 43. Wow. Remember, 22 to 25 is, is <laughs> about what happens in our area, and I was at 43. So I was just waiting. I was in the hospital for um, three or four days while they monitored me, and every day they would come in and say, um, part of the reason I was there is my kidneys had started to fail. So the kidneys take the brunt of your liver as the liver deteriorates and the kidneys start to pick up. Mm. And when the kidneys start to fail, then the whole system starts to fall apart. And so I was in the hospital and every day they would come in, they would measure my kidney function and they'd say, Mr. Creed, I think we're gonna have to put you on dialysis, which is not good if you're waiting for a transplant. Mm. Um, and they said, but we're going to give you one more day and see what happens. And they'd come back the next day and they'd give me the same story. Mr. Creed, I think we're going to have to put you on dialysis. 
We're going to give you one more day and see what happens. What was going through your mind at that moment? Um, honestly, I, I, um, I was, I was prepared for the end. And there was an, an unusual sense of peace about it. I, I felt like I had done the best I could do. And I had tried to uh, love my family the best that I could. And that this was just my lot. This was my fate. And I had accepted that. Um. But, and, and I was, I was, you know, trying to live. That's our natural inclination. We're, we're designed to survive. Yeah. And we can go through quite a bit of trauma, which is remarkable. So day four, um, the kidney doctors come in and say, Okay, Mr. Creed, this is it. We're prepping you for dialysis. Well, it just so happened that one hour before the kidney doctors had come in, a liver had come in. And my uh, transplant surgeon said it was a match and they were gonna take me down for transplant. So by the nick of, you know, barely, I missed, I, I just barely missed that. Wow. That situation which would have put me way back and pushed me down on the transplant list again. So it was just at the nick of time that one uh, liver showed up for me. Something was looking out for you. Yes. And there were many instances that like that that happened just in the nick of time. Mm -hmm. Um so you end up having the surgery. Yes. So I had the surgery um, and uh, it went remarkably well. And I was in my room and the next day I was back on my feet and feeling better and was on a quick road to recovery. I was surprising everyone with how quickly I was recovering. Um, up and down, walking down the hallways and hitting all the marks of what they need uh, to recover. Um, during, during that week that I was recovering, did have one small incident that was pretty scary. They were doing an ultrasound and because of all the fluid that was still in my abdomen, uh, the way the ultrasound hit and created waves, it, it sent my heart into defib. And the doctors acted very, very quickly and brought me back. But there was a brief moment where I was like, oh, no. Um, everyone was in a panic. But thankfully, the, the doctors were very quick acting. Uh, I, I remember seeing them argue over what the correct course of action is, was. And thankfully, they made the right decision. But again, I was still uh, quick to recover. I became the case study the students because this was a, a medical teaching facility where I had my transplant in the best in our area. And I would 
people would come in every day. The doctors uh, loved uh, how I was recovering and, and were very encouraging and all that. And it looked like I was getting ready to go home early, faster than usual. And I remember <clears throat> something changed, obviously. Something big happened after that. And I remember my wife was in sitting with me. It was on a Sunday. And one of the, and the residents came in to take out the last little port, drainage port that they had in my body. So it was there to pick up some of the, the fluid that, that comes up during these trauma moments. So he came in, he took it out and noticed that I wasn't, didn't look quite right. And there was one thing that we still had to do before I could go home. And that was to have a normal bowel movement. So that's what we were waiting on, waiting for me uh, to have that bowel movement. And while the resident was there, um, it happened. I got up, went to the bathroom and, but I was feeling kind of dizzy and weak. And when the resident saw my stool, he noticed that it wasn't normal, that it was filled with blood. And he acted quickly because he recognized what was going on. I didn't. I thought I felt good. I thought things were going fine. I was a little lightheaded, but no big deal. Yay, I just had my bowel movement. I'm going home tomorrow. Little did I know that it was an extreme emergency. And he quickly rushed me back to the ICU. I got in there and they were so concerned um, that they started stuffing tubes in me while I was still conscious. Mm. Ever had a tube stuffed down your nose <laughs> while you're still conscious? It's not fun. Yikes. You don't ever want to have that happen. Um, and I was sitting here trying to fill out all this paperwork that they needed. They were looking for the anesthesiologist to put me under. Um, and they were in action. Uh, I knew something wasn't right. I was scared. My wife was scared. And on top of it, it's on a Sunday. You know who's in a hospital on a Sunday? Not many people, <laughs> especially not the people that that be there, yeah. right? Uh, and um, yeah, I, I remember the things being stuck down my nose and how painful it was. And the nurse and I joking about now she's my enemy. She was taking care of me and was, you know, loved uh, the care that I was getting. And now she's here being cruel and stuffing all these things in me. And I'm signing papers and Sudden, and then finally they put me out. Now, I don't know all the things that happened, but my wife has told me it was pretty scary. In fact, uh, what had happened is that I was bleeding out internally. A place where they put, tried to uh, stitch together the liver to um, my colon, they actually replumb you in some sort of way on the inside when they do a transplant. And so my tissue was so weak from the atrophy of those six years that there was a place where it didn't quite hold. 
And so I was bleeding out internally and they weren't sure where. In fact, I was bleeding so fast uh, that they couldn't get blood in me fast enough. They have some restrictions on how much blood they can transport at a time. And they had a blood train going to the hospital, just keeping blood in me. And it was barely keeping up. It just so happened that on site was a surgeon who specialized in going in laparoscopically to explore these sort of scenarios and find what was going on. Otherwise, they would have had to cut me open and do it all over again. And, but he was there and was able to go in without creating new incisions and, and getting me open again and actually find the tear and stitch it up. Um, but it was a long process and they let my wife stay in there the whole time uh, to talk to me and to encourage me. I believe that they did that because they didn't think they were going to be able to save me. But they did. Thankfully, they did. <clears throat> the only part I remember of all this was waking up to, or two days later after a medically induced coma and coming out of this fog um, and recognizing that I wasn't where I was in the first place uh, before. And when I woke up, um, my body had been through so much trauma. I was carrying 60 pounds extra of water. I had gone to a thin, frail skeleton of a human being to the Michelin man overnight. And I was so weak, my muscles were so weak, um, I couldn't move, I couldn't lift my body. I was in this special bed that kept me rolling around um, so you know, I wouldn't get bed sores. Um, I couldn't move myself. I always had to have someone help me move. And I was so thirsty. I was dying of thirst. But it felt like I just couldn't get enough. But they weren't allowing me to have anything to drink because uh, my goal at that point was to release the fluid and mm -hmm. get rid of it. And that would have made it worse. I felt like that was torture. <laughs> There's the, the Greek um, myth. I can't remember who it was, the guy who was always thirsty and was never allowed to, to drink from the water. Mm. That's what I felt like. And so where I thought I was going home, I ended up in the hospital for a couple more weeks. Um, work through that recovery enough where I could go home. Um, through it all, because of all the pressure, I lost my ability to see. I couldn't see, I couldn't focus on anything. Everything was blurry. My mental capacity felt very stunted. I felt I could hardly talk. Um, my speech was very robotic-like and I thought I was going to be, have some sort of mental, um, mental damage from it all, that I would never be able to get up and walk around and talk and be like normal. Again, 
and I, but I was and I was thankful to be alive at that point. I mean, like I went through all this stuff and I'm still here. Holy crap! <laughs> Look what happened <laughs> and what you can do. And I mean, my body went through some major trauma, and uh, I was still alive and still kicking. And and I, at the time, I was super excited and rejoiceful for the fact that I was still alive. And so it was, that's what took me six months to recover from six to eight months. I was, it took me a long time to, for the weight to come off, um, learn how to walk again, get my eyesight back um, and to recover all my ability to function. So I was home for a long time, completely helpless in the beginning. Um, it's, it's hard to imagine now even how extensive that was and how much trauma the body can go through. I mean, I remember trying to put slippers on my feet so I could go home. They don't want you walking out barefoot. And my feet were so large and swollen, there wasn't anything we could find that would go on them. Um, you remember Fred Flintstone, yeah. the cartoon? <laughs> it's like he had those big fat feet. <laughs> Mine were twice that. Wow. Um, so that was was a, was a huge trauma for me that I had gone through. And again, that just accentuated this idea that I was here for a purpose. And people would comment on that all the time. Oh my gosh, you've gone through so much. You must have been saved for a reason. And during the recovery, it was, it was fine. It didn't really bother me. I'm home. I'm hanging out with my son, my wife. We watched lots of Food Network. Uh, I spent a lot of time fermenting food. If you've ever tried fermenting food, it's fun. It is fun. <laughs> that, that science, you know, you just stick stuff out there and science takes care of all the rest. The natural <laughs> world does everything else for you. But it's something you have to wait for, right? It takes time. And at the time, that's all I had. I'm sitting around waiting, recovering, watching Food Network with my son and making and making sauerkraut and kimchi and my own yogurt and all those sort of things, which was really good for healing your system um, and rebuilding the, the probiotics in your body. I was on lots of meds at the time, so I was doing everything I could naturally to uh, counteract the, the negative impact of those things. Um, but it was when I started going back to work, started going back to the normal life, uh, where the job was not as fulfill fulfilling, um, and it felt like it was taking me away from my true purpose, from my family, from the things that I loved. That's when I started to, to wake up, mm. question, what is life about? So what did you do? Well, um, for a long time, um, I did things I was not proud of. I became very bitter and angry and resentful. 
um, I, I, I started to see life as torture. And I wondered if um, I hadn't really survived and if maybe I woke up and this was what hell is supposed to be like. Um, I became very angry and very bitter and I blamed my wife. Um, it was because of her I had to go back to work. No one else was going to step up and provide for us. It's my responsibility. These are the things I'm telling myself, right? Yeah. I became resentful that she's not there helping us out and doing anything. And, um, and so that started to tear apart our relationship. And um, I, was, I was resentful of my job at the time. So I was in this bitterness and resentfulness and just isolating myself from everyone around me. Um, I was, especially my wife, especially her. That's where most of this resentment was, was driven, centered towards. And at, now stepping back, part of it, I, what I understand is the things that I've learned is like, part of it was my reptilian brain who was trying to figure out what was killing me. Right? We're designed for survival. We're programmed for survival. And there's parts of us that are triggered by things in our environment that threaten us. And especially in these scenarios, I learned these where you go through very traumatic experiences and our brain doesn't really know how to process it. It finds something to blame for the threat and starts to build defenses against it. And so... I believe my brain landed on two things that were the threat that was actually the things that almost killed me. At least that's what it decided. And that was my wife. And I think it landed there because um, the liver disease that I had is, is a digestive uh, disease. And so since she provided all the meals, my brain said, oh, well, it must be her fault that I had a digestive disease. She was feeding me the wrong things. Mm. there's no truth to that whatsoever um, but that was the truth that I was living with you were looking for a scapegoat yes yes and the other one was my job so those are the things that my brain had landed on as my enemies and I started to build these defenses to protect myself from them one of them is that bitterness that resentment right that naturally creates for us a desire to stay away from those things. So for a long time, uh, you know, a couple of years, my wife and I had a horrible relationship, fighting almost every night, um, ignoring each other. Uh, um, it was not good. And it, it was, it was, and I know that that spilled over into the relationship with my kids um, and the environment that we were creating in our household. It felt like a war zone mm. instead of a home. And so here I was in this world where I didn't want to go to work because work was killing me. And I didn't want to go home because home was killing me, right? And I hated everything. I was resentful for everything. And I, I um, at one point, I mean, I remember sitting in our bedroom wondering if it's really worth it anymore. Slate had decided it wasn't worth it anymore. And I pulled out the gun that we had uh, and was, was seriously considering being my wife. 
the one thing that that my brain kept coming to though was I didn't want to leave my then eight-year-old boy without a dad. Um, and and I mean, he doesn't know this, but this he was my lifeline during those times. And I think all that time we spent afterwards, just he and I, while I was recovering, you know, created a tighter bond for us than than we had ever had before. Um, he had only known me as the sick father. I, my illness was diagnosed shortly after he was was born. In fact, early on, uh, when I was showing symptoms of fatigue, uh, I thought it was because we had a baby in the house. And, and any new new parent will know that when you're raising a newborn, it's tiring, right? Um, but the reality was that my wife was doing most of that work and I was sleeping and still being tired. And so I was ignoring the symptoms. But yeah, it was during that time of recovery uh, that I think we, we grew even closer together. And so he, he was my reason that I've got to find a way to keep going. Um, and thankfully, I mean, I started to, to do some things differently. It was a, um, yeah, one of the things that was a turning point for me was again, focusing on, was focusing on my health. Um, I felt like I was starting to walk down the same path, uh, even though I had gone a long ways to recover. Um, I saw myself falling into the same patterns as I was before and was worried that I would end up in the same place. And there was no way I was going to go through all of that trauma one more time. So I was, I was scrolling through Facebook, which is uh, what I found that <laughs> guys do when they're trying to avoid life. <laughs> <laughs> you go through Facebook, scrolling around, or uh, nowadays there's Instagram and all these other things. But Facebook was the big one for me back then. And I came across an ad for a Fit Father program, which was targeting guys over 40 who wanted to get their health back so that they could stick around for their families. I'm like, oh, that's me. Let me try this out. And so I got it and I signed up for the program. It was, it was crazy cheap uh, to start with. I thought, boy, this is, this is easy, no brainer. Um, and started to get involved with that program. And, and Dr. Anthony Balduzzi is the guy who created it. Um, he lost his father when he was a kid. And so he wanted to make sure that other fathers stuck around for their kids. He created this program. And being the achiever, I thought I'm going to do everything Dr. Anthony says to do. And in his program, he had a, a little supplemental piece that says, um, before you start to do this, if you want to, if you want to succeed at the highest level, you want to do this stuff. And so I read that 
And what he said was, um, you need to start with a vision and you need to start these daily practices. Uh, one of them being gratitude mm. one of, and, and reading and journaling. And I was like, okay, whatever. If this is what it takes, I'm going to do it. And so I crafted my first vision statement, which was I'm lean, strong, and energetic. Um, and I had some more about my mission so that I could be there for my kids and provide an example. And I started this practice of writing gratitude every day. And in the beginning, I was very resistant to it. And, but I knew I hated life and I needed to change that. And so I would write every morning, I'm grateful to be alive. Hmm. And then I'd figure out two other things that I was grateful for. So I started this habit of getting up every morning. I'd read my vision statement. I'm lean, strong, and energetic. I'd write, I'm grateful to be alive. And I'd sit there and come up with two other things that I'm grateful for. And then I'd go do my workout. Um, and I kept that up. And somewhere along that journey, um, my I'm grateful to be alive became some more things. And I had this revelation that, you know what? There's no expectation on me now. I mean, I basically died. I'm starting over. Uh, why can't I decide who I want to be now? And be someone different. Mm. So I started thinking about that. Who am I? Well, it started with who am I? This this query about who am I? And at some point, I decided, who do I want to be? And so I started journaling on that every morning. And probably for six months, every morning, I would sit down and write a series of what I call my I ends. Uh, and they were outlining uh, the person I wanted to be. And it started with I'm lean, strong, and energetic, and expanded into things about how uh, I am a person who attracts others into my life that inspire me and help me become the best that I can be. I'm a powerful creator. I create my reality. I get to decide mm -hmm. what I, what my life is like. Um, I'm a provider for my family, and I, you know, I have these things that I enjoy in my life. Um, so these, I was reading lots of books. Um, I'd also re-engaged in one of the loves of my life that I gave up when I got married. I, think I thought it was my responsibility to give up these things that I wanted and go and become a provider. Um, I returned to the dojo uh, and started doing karate again. Part of that was because my son wanted to. He had been watching Power Rangers and we walked past a karate dojo one day and he said, hey dad, I want to do karate. And um, when I was younger, that was one of the things that I loved doing. In fact, I got a black belt in Goju Karate, um, the same style that if you're familiar with the Karate Kid movies, Miyagi-Do. Um, Miyagi-Do is basically modeled after Goju-Ru because uh, the founder of Goju-Ru Karate was Goju Miyagi. Is based on a historical figure. Um, so that was my style of karate when I was growing up, and I loved it. And in fact, I ended up going to Japan to study karate for a while before I met my wife. 
Um, and so when I grew up, I'm holding up quotes. I know you can't see that. <laughs> when I grew up, I gave up those things to do what I thought I needed to do. And so I joined the, uh, my son who was taking Frate. He started actually before my transplant. Um, and I had about six to eight months after my transplant, I started going back to the Karate Dojo with him. This time as a white belt, starting all over. Um, so I'd been, been practicing there, helping to build my strength. I had started this other program, Fit Father program, helped build my strength. Things that we were learning in the dojo were also positive, learning about character development again. Um, the five-fold path, which is determination, effort, courtesy, common sense, and peace, and incorporating all these values, reincorporating them really back into my life and building upon them. And so this was my practice every morning was to think about who do I want to be and to journal on that. And I came up with this long list of, of I am's, and I would write them every morning, and recite them every morning, and then do my gratitude and do my exercises. And it was through that process um, that really began to transform my mind and led me on a journey uh, to meet other great mentors who taught me more about it and helped me understand more of what I was really doing. At the time I was just doing these things, I didn't really understand the science and behind them. Right. Um, <clears throat> And that really sort of accelerated the transformation that I was going through. I hired a coach who helped me develop a, a strong mindset. And uh, I was at a place then where um, I was actually falling in love again with the job and the work that I was doing. Mm down that path for a reason in the beginning I loved mathematics and it was one of my strengths um, but I lost my way in doing what I thought I had to do instead of what I wanted to do. wow so my my job transformed where I was at um, I actually uh, became in charge of innovation in the company and helping spur creative thinking uh, I became the chief innovation officer I was doing karate, uh, and that was helping nourish my mind, my body, and my soul, and uh, my relationships at home so getting better again. I know that this is, this is going to be a hard question because there's so many lessons that you've learned throughout this journey, but if you could boil it down um, and if you could give your former self going through this journey, a piece of advice from your perspective that you have now today, what would that be? Yeah, this, this is the thing that I've learned and I'll, I'll unpack it a little bit. Um, and it's become the motto for my company, and that is that we are in conflict. Um, and what I mean by that is that uh, underlying that is a core belief that life is always working for us. Even in those, what we see as the hardest times, 
Life is always working for us for our greatest good, our greatest growth, greatest evolution. And we always have a choice. We powerful creators. We create our reality. And we get to decide what that looks like. Um, so my advice to my former self is one, to remember that you're uncomfortable. And two, get clear on what you want and decide that for yourself. Because you do have the power to create that. So, so Russell, how has conquering your obstacle, not only of your health, but, but truly of, of your mind and of your soul, how has that influenced where you are today? And can you tell us a little bit more about what's going on in your reality these days? What motivates you and what do you have going on? Absolutely. Love to tell you about that. So first of all, um, the thing that's changed most is that now I'm in love with life. Uh, I love being alive. I love what's going on in my life. I love my wife. I love my children. Uh, I love the work I do. Yeah, I'm, it's a complete 180 from where I was. And I'm so excited and grateful. I mean, that's, I'm so grateful to be alive. Mm -hmm. That statement that I started with that I didn't mean uh, in my heart, but I was riding out of um, just following the path, following the instructions that were set out for me. That has become so true for me that I am grateful to be alive. What that has also uh, transformed that, uh, the work that I do today. So one of the things that I do is that I, I help other men who are in that place where they're stuck, where they've been doing the things that they thought would lead them to su success. That they're doing all the right things, um, but still feel unfulfilled. I help them back to a place where they're inspired, where they're living meaningful lives. Uh, and that's what Invictus Life is about. Um, I do that through a number of ways. Uh, I have um, what I've created is called uh, the Master Your Fate Formula, which is really about empowering men to understand that they're powerful creators and that life is always working for them. They are unconquerable. Mm. We are all unconquerable. Uh, so the Master Your Fate Formula really is made up of three components. And that's uh, one is creating an uncomfortable mindset. When we can look at life and recognize that life is always working for us, find the blessings in life, that we have a mindset that we are unconquerable and that we can create whatever we want. And that's powerful. That's life-changing. And I help men get there and recognize that they are truly unconquerable. And you do, you guys do some pretty cool work uh, from what I can tell, right? You guys do some, some wilderness stuff or what did I yeah. see on there? <laughs> yeah. So let me, let me share the other two parts of um, the master your faith formula and I will get to the wilderness stuff. Okay. Uh, because there's two more components and that's one is connecting to your power. So when you understand why you're here, what you're about, you show up in a way more powerful. So I help men get reconnected with their purpose. And the other key component is what I call the indestructible brotherhood. We don't go through this journey alone. Um, 
And that's uh, one of the things that, especially in America, where, it, where the individualization is so promoted, um, it's glorified to do things on your own, um, to be that lone wolf, right? And, and that gets us in a place where we're stuck. And so I, I uh, promote the indestructible brotherhood and part of creating that brotherhood in our programs is we do go out and learn some ventures, we do things together and we get to a place where we um, can create authentic connections. And so it's about those, that part of the program is really about helping men connect with other men and build those bonds that will last a lifetime and help us grow together. On the power of community, you guys, if any of you guys have gone through a group experience like this, it's just, it amplifies uh, your learning when you're able to do it with others. And Russell, it has been so fantastic to talk to you today and to hear your story. I know that others are going to be interested to find more about you. Where would be the best place for people to connect with you? So there's a number of places that you can connect with me. Uh, I am on Facebook and Instagram. And, and it's the easiest way to find me is by searching my name, Russell Creed. I also have a Facebook group designed for men who are looking to get more opportunities to create that unconquerable spirit. And it's called Unconquerable Men. So you, you can look for that group on Facebook. I have a website which talks more about um, my my coaching practice and programs that we have there. That's at theinvictuslife.com. And you guys, as always, you can find all of Russell's links in the description down below. So if you missed it, don't worry. If you're too lazy to type it out yourself, don't worry. I got you. It's in the description. Thank you so much, Russell, for joining us today. It truly was my pleasure. Thank you for having me here. It's been a, it's been a joy. for tuning into today's episode of the Becoming the Big Me podcast. I know that you found value in hearing this story today, and I would love if you could show your support by going and grabbing a copy of our book. And you can do so by going to bit.ly slash greatconquest. You can also go to www.thegreatconquest.com for more information about each of the individuals involved in this process. Thanks again for tuning in.